want to invite you to have a seat. And as you do, I want to welcome you uh, to Hagerstown Church. You've already heard one welcome, but I want to make, want to make sure that you know uh, on behalf of of uh, the pastors here at Hagerstown Church that we love you and we're glad that you're here. Uh, in case I didn't say it, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here and it's my privilege to bring the word to you this morning. We're continuing our study in uh, this series called The Gospel-Centered Life. The Gospel-Centered Life. As I prayed in my prayer, I don't want you to become weary of this. I want you to recognize that the definition, the very gospel itself, is the food that we need, that God has provided for us graciously. So as we talk about this gospel-centered life, whether you've heard it a thousand times, a million times, or this is the first time, I want you to know this. This is what the gospel is. It's the good news. Gospel simply means good news. It's the good news. This is possibly on the screen. It's the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we talk about this idea of being centered in our lives on the gospel, we gave this definition. What is the gospel-centered life? Well, it's the continual rediscovery of these truths. That God is more holy than you can imagine. You are more sinful than you realize And the cross is more powerful than you know. The continual rediscovery of these truths, that God is more holy than you can imagine, you are more sinful than you realize, and the cross is more powerful than you know. One of my favorite characters from history, and one of the most important figures, I would argue, especially as it relates to Christianity, is a German monk from the 16th century by the name of Martin Luther. On October 31st, 1517, before that time he was basically unknown, and at that point in time he was thrust upon uh, the center stage of the, of the world, ultimately. What put him there was these 95 theses that he secured to the castle church there in Wittenberg. And w- when he did that, he sparked a reformation, really unwittingly. He gave way to the truths of the gospel to once again be able to dawn upon the church. Luther didn't intend to harm the Pope or even the Catholic Church. That wasn't what he was doing. In fact, he assumed that his beloved Pope would be shocked if he only knew the debauchery that was taking place there in Germany as it related to indulgences. You see, in those days, it had become acceptable for certain licensed preachers to go about and sell indulgences to the masses as a way of raising funds for the Catholic Church. And so it was the the original uh, uh, chocolate bar sale, right? And yet it was a little bit less savory. A portion of the money raised would be sent off to St. Peter's Basilica, and then another handsome portion would be kept back for selfish and political purposes. People would give the very shirt off of their back. They would give food off of the plates of their kids in an effort to rescue their dead loved ones uh, and, 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 and provide safe passage from purgatory or hell into heaven. An, adult, an indulgence was the, uh, uh, an allowance by the Pope for remission of the temporal punishment and purgatory that was still due for sins after absolution. In plain language, it was believed that forgiveness of sin and and final alleviation of punishment could be secured through the giving of money, through the purchasing of an indulgence. People would buy these for themselves to cover the sins of their past, of the future, and even of the sins of their dead and gone loved ones who are presently, according to them in their thought, being punished for their sins. And to be clear, the, the, 
the pur- a purse filled with indulgences, it had about the same value as a briefcase packed full of IOUs. Illustrating the weak and unbiblical nature of indulgences, Luther offers this account. He, he tells the story, it's hysterical. One preacher was selling indulgences, his name was Tetzel, and he had received a substantial amount of money at Leipzig from a nobleman because this nobleman had asked him for a letter of indulgence for a future sin. And so he, uh, Tetzel uh, agrees to this, but he insists that the money must be paid now, no payments no going home and talking to your wife about it. It needs to be paid right now. And so uh, the man, this nobleman, he paid the fee for the indulgence of this future sin. And Tetzel, with a smile on his face, got into his carriage and rode off. It wasn't long before he was overcome by a marauder. That marauder thoroughly beat Tetzel. And he took the money back. And then he pulled his face mask down and said, Hey, man, just want to let you know, uh, this sin was covered. You promised. He was the one that had... Uh, just purchased this indulgence. And it was an interesting story. Why? Well, it illustrates the fact that an indulgence is an unbiblical truth. Not only is it unbiblical, but it's impractical. But this Tetzel, he had a few things right. Let's set the stage for the sale of indulgences. He knew that God was holy, and he preached that. And he knew that man was terribly sinful. Not only did he preach that, but he also modeled that and demonstrated that as well. However, however, where he went astray was by preaching that there is some sort of action that we can take as human beings, that there is some amount of money that we can pay in order to receive forgiveness of sin. There is no amount of money, there is no amount of works that can erase the sins of mankind that can separate or or bridge the gap that separates us and man. The only way to bridge that gap is through the gospel and specifically through repentance of our sin that the gospel declares to us and reveals to us and in faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Likely, you remember the first recorded words of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. We talked about that not very, uh, just a few months ago. We looked in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn there. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. I think it's safe to assume that there is some special significance to somebody's first recorded words. It's just only natural. The first thing that I say to you when I greet you at the door will likely set the stage and even the table for the rest of the evening that you'll spend with me and my family. If I greet you with a smile and pretend like I want to hug you but don't because of COVID, <laughs> then you might seem and f- to, you might feel welcomed. You might begin to set the stage for how the evening is going to go. Contrastly, if I were to greet you with a, an uninterested comment, might also set the stage and give you an indication that you want to make this visit brief. So I think it's interesting that we take a look at what Jesus first says here in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This is what the word of God says. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, listen, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I'm going to read his statement again. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, it is our only hope that you would bless the reading of your word this morning and that your people would be helped as a result of it. Jesus, again, we pray that we would see the Father in his holiness. We pray that we would see our sinfulness. We pray that we would rest and run to the gospel in repentance. And we pray that these things be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. Imagine listening to a sermon of one of the apostles or even Jesus himself there in that first century, uh, being moved by it and calling out at the end, what are we to do about this? Jesus, what do you want us to do? What, do we, what action can we take? How can we be saved? This was regularly asked in the New Testament. Many of us, if had we lived in that time, would have asked a similar question. And this similar formula was regularly given, right? It was believe in Christ. Believe and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. At the center of man, uh, the center of man's re- response for salvation is this word, repent. Repent. And accordingly, we would do well to understand it. What does this word mean? What does it mean to truly repent? What is required of us? Let's break down this word, repent. It, it, the word repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia. And the prefix meta, it, it can mean uh, with, beside, or even after. An example of the word uh, meta, or the prefix meta, is, is found in metaphysics. And so if, if the study of physics is the study of those elements of nature that are really visible and tangible and perceivable, we can touch them, then metaphysics or metaphysical uh, studies are the attempt to reach beyond the realm of the physical world into even the transcendent world. So I hope, hopefully that helps you to understand what metanoia means. The root of that word, noia, is the verb form of the noun that we find frequently in the Bible as nous. This is simply the Greek word for mind. It's the simplest form. In its simplest form, the term metanoia has to do with the mind afterward. Or as we might say, an afterthought. A change in thought. The Greek language, it, it, in, in, in the Greek language, it came to mean a significant changing of one's mind. A significant changing of one's mind. And the feeling most often associated with repentance in Scripture is that of remorse, regret, and a sense of sorrow for having acted in a particular way. And so therefore, repentance involves sorrow for a previous form of behavior. You could define it this way if you're taking notes. Repentance, hopefully on the screen, to change the mind in regard to your behavior. To change the mind in regard to your behavior. I love how Robert Thune words it in connection with our current series. This is what he says. In repentance, we confess the tendency of our hearts to shrink the cross through performance and pretending. We pull off affections. We pull those away from, I'm sorry, we pull our affections away from false saviors and fraudulent sources of righteousness and turn to Jesus as our only hope. Last week we talked, I'm sorry, two weeks ago we talked about pretending and performing pretending and performing. I'll give those to you again. Pretending was when we minimized our sinfulness by thinking that we are better than we really are. That's pretending. We're not really that bad. Jesus doesn't really need to save us all that much. The cross doesn't need to work that hard. 
It doesn't, I don't need that much of the blood of Jesus on me. I'm not that sinful. That's pretending. It's minimizing our sinfulness. Performing is minimizing God's holiness by thinking that we can obtain it through our own effort. That God's not really that far away. He's not really that high above us. He's better than me. I will concede that. But he's not that much better than me. This is what performing is saying. And it's minimizing God's holiness. And this is at the heart of every single one of us. That God would not be seen as holy, not as holy as he is, and that we would not view ourselves as sinful as we really are. That that span, that gap between us would be brought a little bit closer. In that quote that I just gave you by Pastor Thune, he references false saviors and fraudulent sources. What kind of false saviors do you have in your life? What kind of false saviors are you tempted to give your affection and hope to? For many of us, it's family members. Maybe a loved one that's gone on before. A faithful, even a faithful servant of the Lord. We somehow look to them as if they are some type of a savior. Maybe it's even your spouse. Maybe it's your pastor. Maybe it's your life group leader, your D group leader. Maybe you have this false savior. I think most of us, though, our own false savior, the false savior that we have is ourselves. We look to ourselves as if we can somehow save ourselves. And at the end of the day, we have to come to grips with the fact, that, with the truth of the matter, that we cannot save ourselves. We are false saviors. And connected with that is this idea of fraudulent sources of righteousness. Maybe because of some moral association. Because you grew up in church. Because all of your friends are pretty good folk. Because of the good deeds that you've done yourself. This is spilling back into false saviors. It's not true repentance. True repentance is turning from these things. Seeing God for who he is. Seeing us, you, I'm sorry, you for who you are. And looking to the cross and recognizing that only by the work of the cross alone and by your faith placed in that and turning from your own sources of righteousness can you truly find salvation. We're going to have to quote J.I. Packer again the late J.I. Packer, this is what he said in reference to repentance. He said this, Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. I'm going to read that again. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. So when, we, when the Lord, His Spirit, reveals our sinfulness to us and more that we have to give to Him, We give it to him. As our knowledge grows, our practice of, repent, of repentance grows as well, or at least it should. This is the gospel-centered life, worded otherwise. And so we see the definition of repentance. 
I want to look with you just for a moment at what repentance is not. I think this would be a good conversation for you to have in, in uh, family worship, maybe in your D group, in your life group, but to ask this question, what is repentance not? Well, this is what repentance is not. First, it is not simply remorse. Repentance is, simply, is not simply remorse. Repentance does involve remorse, but it is not simply remorse. When somebody is remorseful and only remorseful, they are making statements like this. I can't believe that I did that. I can't believe I did that. Have you ever found yourself saying that? You were remorseful about it? There's nothing wrong with that statement, but if you believe that 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 sense of remorse in your life is the equivalent of repentance, it is not. Ultimately, what underlies this kind of statement that I can't believe I did that is you're saying something more akin to this. That's not really what I'm like. That's not really what I'm like. I'm not typically like that. That's, I don't know where that came from. I don't normally treat people that way. I don't normally think those types of thoughts. That's not really what's in my heart and really at the root of that statement is blasphemy. So I don't mean to be the repentance police this morning. But if you're simply just saying, I can't believe I did that, and you're not in tune with what the Bible says about you, the Bible says this, that you are guilty of any sin in the newspaper, any single one of them. You, yes, you, and you, mom, your child, also capable of any sin in the newspaper, whether it be a national or a local one. And so to be able to say something like, I, I can't believe I did that, at the heart of that is blasphemy. Of course you can. Of course you should. Similar, just as dangerous, but also not repentance is this statement. I promise to do better next time. Repentance is not resolution. And so it's not remorse. It's also not resolution. Again, repentance involves resolution. Resolution by itself says this. And so many good Christians, and I say good Christians in quote, so many good Hagerstown Church members think this, and I know because I am in that group, I say things like this, I promise to do better next time. I'll do better. I'll fix this. I won't let this happen again. It's akin to remorse, but it stands all alone by itself as well. It's as if you're saying that you have the power to change yourself. So many of you are here this morning and you say, I wish that I could change myself. I wish that I could change who I am. I wish that I could do that. And yet you know, you hear the scriptures, even this morning as we remind ourselves of the gospel through song and in prayer and even in the preaching of the word, you're reminded that, no, I can't fix myself. It doesn't matter how much resolve I have, I am unable to change my own heart. And so repentance is not remorse and repentance is not resolution. No, not by itself. And so let's get really practical this morning. As we talk about what what repentance actually is, we looked at what it's not. Let's talk about what it actually is. What are some of the aspects of true repentance? Of true repentance. Number one, it's this. It's God-oriented. It's God-oriented. I hope you're writing these things down. Make a mental note. It's God-oriented. True repentance. When you truly repent, you are recognizing that your sin is an affront to God and not to yourself. 
In other words, your sin is bad, not because it's unfortunate to you. Not because you ended up burning your hand or skinning your knee or ruining a relationship. The, the consequences are going to be difficult any time that we sin. But that's not the reason that we should come to repentance. True repentance is God-oriented. David, he gives us an awesome, an awesome example of this thought. Now, this aspect of true repentance. In essence, he's saying, my life is not about me. My life is not about those who I sin against. My life is God's, and I must repent to him. In Psalm 51, verses 3 to 5, this is what David says. We have an intimate view of his prayer after he was found out to be in sin. This is what he says. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless, blameless in your judgment. How could David say something like that? David had sinned against Bathsheba. Depending on what account, which perspective you take, ultimately he raped her. Had her husband Uriah killed, sinned against him, sinned against the child, sinned against Joab, his general, as he made him part and parcel to uh, this cover-up. He sinned against Uriah's battalion. Many of them died as well in the cover-up. And every other Israelite he sinned against because he was their king. He abused his power and his position to serve himself. But David doesn't bring any of that up. Why? Because he recognizes that his greatest offense was not to those around him. It wasn't to the ones that he was called to lead. It was the one who called him to lead. His sin was against God. And so true repentance is not about you. True repentance is not say, well... It's so unfortunate that I've done what I've done. And I hate the results. I hate the brokenness in my life. I hate the brokenness in my relationships. That's not true repentance. True repentance says, God, I've sinned against you. And whether it works out for me or not, I repent. I've broken your law. And so true repentance is God-oriented. But not only is it God-oriented, but Related to that, it is godly sorrow motivated. Repentance is motivated by godly sorrow. You say, what, what's godly sorrow? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 10 speak to that and give us a, a bit of a definition for what godly sorrow actually is. It says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. He says, for godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death. He says, Paul says, I'm, I, I rejoice. I'm pleased because when I offered correction to you, when I pointed out your sinfulness, you were sorrowful. But that sorrow that you had, it gave way to repenting, to changing of the mind. Eventually, the changing of the actions. Why? Because you felt a godly grief. You didn't suffer a loss through us. No. Paul says, when I offered correction, 
you responded with a changed mind. And not just sorrowful over the fact that you'd been called out and embarrassed and now, even now, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about these folks and all the sins that they've done. No, that's not the, that's not the type of grief or sorrow that Paul is speaking of. No, he's saying there was a, it was a sorrow that led to a change of mind. So human sorrow is unsanctified remorse. It has no redemptive capability. It's nothing more than a wounding of the pride because you were caught in sin or having one's lust go unfulfilled. That kind of grief, it doesn't lead to anything but guilt, shame, despair, hopelessness, self-pity. There's no power in that. There's no changing in that. But with godly sorrow, there is power. Why? Because it's God-given. And it's God-oriented. And so repentance, it's that God-oriented and godly sorrow-motivated repentance. And so those are two of the four. Let me give you two more for a total of four. True repentance is heart-focused. It's heart-focused. Psalm chapter 51, again, still into that prayer that David prays, that prayer of, repent, of repentance. He says in verse 10, Psalm 51, speaking to God, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit, within me. Create in me a clean heart. Create something new. Give me something different. Remember the weaknesses of remorse and resolution as opposed to repentance, true repentance, is that you minimize your sin and you think that you're better than you really are. You think that you can do better, that somehow you can change. This change is based on outward action mostly. And we say, I'm not going to do that again. I'll never do that again. I'm going to take steps to make sure that I never act out that way, that people could see me do that or hear me say that I'm going to change. We focus on outward actions and not inward impulses. And this is dangerous. We're so tempted to address the fruit and not the root. We're so tempted to, to, to look at the outside and not the inside. And not only is it impractical, because God does look on the inward and man on the outward, but it's just not real repentance. It's like when you're a kid and your mom tells you to pull the weeds, and you think that's just too difficult to pull the weeds. And so you go through there with a, with a pair of scissors, or you go through there with a butter knife that she wouldn't want you to have either, and you just lop them off at the top, just kind of get down there just under the top of the soil there, and you go your way. And what happens just in a few days' time? Mom says, what? I thought you pulled the weeds. You didn't pull them, did you? You just cut the tops off. This is, this is a, this is a never-ending game. But true repentance doesn't just take the tops off. True repentance, it, does, it may start with a changing of the, of, the, of the fruit, but it doesn't end there. True, true repentance looks to God and says, create in me a clean heart. I need something different. I'm not going to be changed unless you change me. 
Let's say you come over to my house for dinner and you accepted my invitation upon the mutual understanding that there would not be beans served at dinner. Why? Because you are deathly allergic to beans. And so I know that, you know that. You come over to the house and I say, let's, let's eat. And so you sit down. I, I begin to set the table for you. I pull this pot off the stove next to you, in front of you there. I put the ladle, I dip it in and I pull, pull it out and I pour the contents of that ladle into your bowl and you see right on top, right on top beans and you think man what was this guy thinking does he not know that he could kill me I can't eat beans this is going to kill me and so you uh by your facial expression you you uh signal to me that hey wait a minute you've messed up and so I say oh I have I can't believe I made bean soup for you that sounds gross Uh, but uh, I made bean soup for you and you're allergic to beans I should have known that and I say forgive me so I take that bowl away and I rush over to the sink I put that into the sink and I get into the cupboard I get a new bowl I bring it over to you I set it in front of you it's clean and I take that same ladle and I dip it back into the bowl of the pot of soup and I ladle out another ladle of bean soup you think what what kind of foolishness is this this I can't believe I'm eating dinner at this. I can't believe he's our pastor. Why would, how could, how could he not know that it's going to be the same thing? This is the the contents of the pot. They've all been in there together. And so whatever comes out of that pot is still going to be beans. It's the same thing. It's the same result. Exactly. So when it comes to sin, we have to be heart focused. We can't say, oh, let's just go back again. We can be stronger. We can be better. No, we say, no, God, we have a sick heart. And we need your help. And so with wisdom of, of the, with the wisdom of David, given to him by the Holy Spirit, we come and we say, God, everything in this pot has beans in it. I need something different. I need you to do something different in me. And so we say, change my heart, God. And some of you, you this is where you're stuck at. You believe, we talked about this a few weeks ago, you believe that God will forgive you for your sin, but you do not believe that God has the power to change you. You believe that you can be saved by the cross from the penalty of sin, but you struggle to believe that the power of sin is not still on you. And this might be the key right here. Perhaps it's because you have attacked the symptoms. You've attacked the fruit. You've pulled all the blooms off, every one of the buds, and you think that that's going to take care of this problem, and yet it does not. Another problem that we have is related to this fourth aspect component of true repentance and that is that true repentance number four is Jesus dependent true repentance is Jesus dependent in Acts chapter 3 verses 19 through 20 this is what it says repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you Jesus Speaking of Israel here, applying to us as well. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. How will they be blotted out? What will happen? Well, times of refreshing will come upon you from the presence of the Lord. In what way? In the way that he sends the Christ, appointed for you, namely Jesus. So true repentance is Jesus dependent and here we are again we look at the holiness of God and his law that emanates from his very being and we think oh how sinful 
how utterly helpless I am. And we see that. It's increasing. It's growing. His holiness. We see it ever more clearly every day in the life of a Christian. How sinful we are, how holy he is. But we don't stop there. We continue to look, and particularly in the gospel, we see the provision of his son. In verse 20 there in chapter 3 of Acts, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In what way? How? That as he sends the Christ, who is Jesus. So we see the power of the cross of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. The cross frees, Jesus, or frees us from the penalty of sin, but it also frees us from the power of sin. There's no resolution that will create in you a clean heart. There are no New Year's decisions that will help you to turn over a new leaf. And so why is remorse not enough? Why is feeling bad for your sins not enough? Because it, it, it misappropriates the level of your corruption. It misunderstands it. Why is, resol- why is resolution not enough? Because, it, again, it misunderstands how inept we are to change ourselves. How, un, un, uh, how unable we are to do so. It misunderstands it. And this idea of being Jesus-dependent is so clearly displayed in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your, your Bible this morning, I want to I encourage you just to swap over there quickly to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first nine verses of that chapter. whether you're just listening to me as I read it or whether you're following along, I want you to, I want you to think about what's really happening. Try. I know, I know it can be so difficult to actually like, process what's taking place, but I, I want you to, as, as best as you can, and asking the Spirit of God to, to, to enlighten you and to see this passage more clearly today, do that now and let's read it. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. No amount of remorse, no amount of resolution is going to fix you. It says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is the spirit of Satan. This is his ideology. Among whom we all were once, we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a bad situation. It's hopeless. Except for verse 4. I love this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were unable to have enough remorse and resolve to change, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, with Jesus Christ. And he seated us with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. How? In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
It's not a result of works. It's not a result of remorse. It's not a result of resolution, of trying to change your own heart. What is it a result of? Well, not by any works, lest any man should boast. Why? For we are his workmanship. We are his, in a sense, project. He's demonstrating his grace and his power in our lives as he works in us, recreating us where and how in Christ Jesus. Verse 10 says, why and how, for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand, which is the law, in a sense, that we should walk in them. Did you see that? We were dead in our sins, but God, in his love and in his mercy, when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with Christ. Why? Because because we're his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. This week I was reminded of a statement by the late R.C. Sproul. This is what he said. If you know you should repent, but you can't produce feelings of repentance in yourself, pray that God would work repentance in you. Because the only one who can produce genuine repentance in your soul is God. God convicts us of sin. God awakens us to our guilt. And if God crushes us in our godly sorrow, it is an act of sheer grace. It's his act of mercy to bring us to faith and conversion. If that's you here this morning, you say, I want to experience this type of repentance. I want to to experience this biblical repentance, this repentance that is God-oriented. So that's what I want in my life. I want God-oriented repentance. Not repentance that's about yourself. Not repentance because of the, the, the repercussions or consequences of your actions. But a repentance that says, I've sinned against a holy, righteous God. If you say, I want a repentance that doesn't just attack the heart or the, the, the fruit, that doesn't just change the outside, but really gives me a clean inside, and I know I can't do that. And so I've got to depend on Jesus Christ. If that's you here this morning, listen. Pray that God would give that repentance to you. As we close this morning, I want to read to you some of the most earth-shattering material to ever be written aside from the Word of God. That's a, that's a big statement. And I believe it's true. It's the very first of Luther's 95 Theses. This is what it says. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he said that in Mark chapter 1, he said that in Matthew chapter 4, when he said that, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. I want to read that again. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance church you say what is the gospel-centered life the gospel-centered life is this 
It's the life of believers being one of repentance. See God as holy. See yourself as sinful in that light. And see that you have no hope in and of yourself. And turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. His work alone saves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed so clearly to us in the scriptures that you are holy and that we're not. And in our heart of hearts, we know that there's nothing that we can do to change ourselves. If there's anything that we can say amen to this morning, solely on, on personal experience alone, it would be that, that we can't change ourselves. So we pray that you would give us repentance, God. We pray that you would help us to believe the things that your word says about you, even when it doesn't make sense, even if we don't see it. God, even when we can't see our own sinfulness, when we can, we're, we're so focused on the, the redeeming, if it were, as it were, qualities that we have. Father, help us to lean into what you have said to be true about us. Help us not to stay there in hopelessness. Give us true repentance. We pray for that now. That you would change our hearts, that you would change our minds. And we ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.